I would laugh at that because I think, oh, great, I'm going to have a pastor that can't get into the White House. It's very simple to pull the plane up, get off the plane, give your speech. The detail, how long were you with the detail with President Bush? Uh, just, just under five years. Imagine the pressure that that puts on the, the agents responsible for keeping him safe. And now, the safety zone. Welcome, folks, to another episode of The Safety Zone with Mike McCarty. I'm Melinda Ron, your host. And Mike, welcome. And I, I have to tell you, I'm particularly, I'm always excited about our guests, but I'm particularly excited about our guest today because Paul is, his name's Paul Dvorak for our listeners here, but he has a long, lustrous career as a U.S. Secret Service agent. And I have to say, I, as a kid, I just, I, I was mesmerized by the Secret Service and, and what they did. And Paul, we won't make it sound like a, a movie. However, one of my favorite movies was, I believe it was In the Line of Fire with uh, Clint Eastwood playing the Secret Service detail. And so we just really excited and happy to have you here today. And, and I'm actually going to turn it over to Mike and because I'm kind of curious, Mike, how you garnered someone like Paul and his wonderful background to be on your advisory board, which is just wonderful at Safe Hiring Solutions. So give us a little intro, Mike, and we'll, we'll get this conversation started. Yeah, absolutely. Good morning, Melinda and Paul. This goes back, wow, probably four plus years now. And we had made a decision at Safe Hiring that we needed advisory board. You know, we're a for-profit company, but we really were looking for expertise in different areas that could really make us better. And I can tell you, sometimes that's scary as a CEO, right? <laughs> sometimes you're like, wow, you know, I thought that was a good idea, but... So we had made this decision and we, we were moving very slowly with this because we really wanted to bring the best of the best. And and all I will say is Paul and I cross paths and I'll let him kind of introduce himself because that's probably part of where we're going with this conversation. And Paul, welcome. And yeah, if you want to introduce, you know, where we met and how you got involved with safe hiring. Sure. Good. Good morning, Mike and Melinda. It's good to be with you today. Mike and I, I, I'm a member of ASIS, and they have monthly meetings and typically have guest speakers. And admittedly, I don't go to a whole lot of the meetings because I didn't. I don't find sometimes the subject matter to be engaging for the area that I'm interested in. But there was one month where they were talking about backgrounds, and um, and Mike was presenting to the group, and so I did attend that meeting, and because I was just kind of curious to to see where that industry was going. Obviously, in the Secret Service, we do some pretty thorough background checks, and we always get questions from private sector and other areas as to what makes a good background. What, what should you be looking for? So not knowing even much about Mike's company, I think I pulled the company up and just, just read his uh, web link page and, and uh, looked at some of his credentials and certainly was interested enough to, to attend to see what he wanted to talk about and how much detail he would get into. And honestly, I was, I was very impressed with his presentation. I was familiar with some other companies that did backgrounds and I always walked away thinking, 
boy, I, I bet you these customers don't really know what they're getting. They don't know enough to ask what goes into a background, some pitfalls that can happen. And they get this piece of paper. It says that a thorough background was checked. These sources were checked. These criminal databases were checked. And I'm sure they scan to the bottom of the sheet to say if it was successful or not. And if anything came up and when they see it wasn't, they file it away and they move on. And they, they don't give it another another glance, don't think about what they're getting, how much they're paying for it. It's just a necessary evil in their world, and they move on. And when I heard Mike's presentation, and he went into exactly that type of pitfalls and the lack that some of these background companies, the lack of their thoroughness and what he does and pretty much ended all of that saying, you can get more for what you're paying for. He was saying, you know, we don't charge any more than our competitors. And in a lot of areas, we charge less and we provide a more thorough background. And by listening to his presentation and hearing the databases that he went into, that that they check, and then if something doesn't come up the way they want, like the other checks that they go and do beyond that, if they're not satisfied with whatever information a typical database has given them, the extra steps that they go to ensure that they got the answer that they needed or, or what they presumed to have happened, that's what I was really impressed. On and I, I didn't see that in other companies. So, you know, from that, you know, I walked up after the presentation, introduced myself, we exchanged cards, and kind of the friendship began there. And so we, we started to have some meetings together and, and it was just, I, I was interested in the, in the business and how they did in other areas that he was getting involved in or was already involved in. He was more than just a background check company at that point, even. And so we had some really good conversations and, you know, over the course of several years, he asked me to then become a member of his advisory board, which I was thrilled to do and still thrilled to be a part of. So that, that's kind of how our relationship began. Well, and I would say, Paul, it's quite refreshing because, you know, you're coming out of 20 plus years on the law enforcement side. So you understand the checks and balances required and especially think in terms of Secret Service, you know, somebody that's going to have very close contact with high level dignitaries, presidents, vice presidents, yeah. family. There's no room for air. But then you compare that to the private sector and the approach is very different. And just 10 minutes before we logged on, came across my desk real quickly. They're working and speaking with a large church out west, 17,000 member church. And the person that we're having contact with was really starting to like what we're doing. And we had run a bunch of case studies knowing exactly what database, and they're only using one solution, no checks and balances. And we had run 20 felons to show them, if you run this through your system, they will not show up. And then we get an email back this morning. My supervisor says, hey, we like the interface with our current provider. It works smoothly. And it was like it wasn't even about <laughs> safety. Right. It was about, hey, this is working. 
yeah, it working pretty well. I mean, it's a church of 17,000. So, I mean, wow. you know, they got a lot of people taking care of kids. And so this whole mindset that kind of permeates the private sector side, most background screening firms are business people. I mean, there's no requirement for who starts these. So for me, it was refreshing to have somebody and, and just to get Paul's thinking as well to say, hey, have you ever thought about this? I mean, there's a lot of times, you know, Paul and I have traveled to different parts of the country and met with schools and some of these conversations. Paul really challenges me sometimes to think about, hey, what about, and I thought, man, I've never thought about that before, which is really the role of an advisory board member. And even off the cuff, it turns out Paul and I kind of had a shared friend, a guy I went through the police academy with. He didn't last too long in Nashville and moved on to the Secret Service. And I remember one of the first times Paul and I had lunch, he's like, oh yeah, I know Scott. And uh, it's just funny how some things kind of crossed over there over time. Paul, when you look at the Secret Service. Everybody wants to talk about the Secret Service and everybody's, you know, Melinda mentions the movie with Clint Eastwood and everybody thinks about the protective side. Can you give us kind of a an overview of the Secret Service? Clearly, everybody's interested in the protection side, but it's a much broader organization than just providing protection. Am I right? Uh, most certainly. You know, an agent's typical career, probably when you add up their entire career in years, they probably spend more time in an investigative role than they do protection. They typically start out in a field office. You know, it could be any any size field office throughout the country. And you know, we're positioned in every major city in the U.S. and, and several cities abroad. And then a lot of different smaller towns are represented by some places. It might only be a couple agents, but you know we cover the entire nation. And what you're dealing with there predominantly is an investigative role. So you may do that for anywhere from five to to nine years or so. And you'll you'll be supporting the protective mission in, in different parts of the country. You'll travel around and and post stand for some of our protectees and, and actually internationally as well. And that comes kind of in a rotation basis. But but you know, those those trips are three, four, four days, yeah, sometimes longer, but it's not three hundred and sixty five days a year that you're supporting those missions. So all the other times you're you're doing some type of investigations, uh, criminal investigations. But you also, I mean, since we just talked about backgrounds, you know, you may be doing some background investigations as well for um, potential applicants to the Secret Service. We do much more than just database check. We go out and, and interview people and, and then develop additional interviews on top of what kind of information the applicant provided us just to ensure that, I mean, obviously someone's not going to write down the name of somebody they they didn't have a positive interaction with. So, right. but we'll dig deeper than that, trying to find out if there was. And if during our initial phase, we kind of get a feeling that there's something more there, well, we'll keep digging and digging and digging until we're satisfied that we've got to the conclusion and there's enough in one direction or the other. So we do those type of investigations. And then on the criminal side, a lot of different facets. Boy, when I started the Secret Service, it was fairly limited almost as to the type of investigations. I'm dating myself in a big way here. Anybody in my era, we started out doing treasury check 
investigations. Oh. They no longer exist. So those those were very easy investigations. Now now we're doing dealing with cyber investigations. Everything's electronic. There's there's no way around it. There's no investigation that doesn't touch some type of databases, electronic computer. Doesn't matter. I mean, counterfeiting is credit card theft, bank fraud, obviously any of the stuff that we do and even the intelligence type of investigations or social media investigations anymore. So everything touches a computer these days where when I started, there certainly were those investigations, but but not every aspect of it was. So, you know, back to your question, I mean, you do predominantly your first part of your career is committed to criminal investigations and learning those investigations. You'll go to a protective detail and that would be about five years or so maybe a little bit longer now. And that is 100% protection. You're not conducting any kind of criminal investigations during during that period. You simply don't have time. It's 100% protection. And then once you fulfill that responsibility, there's a lot of different directions you can go in a career. You can go right back to the field and you're back in the kind of the role you were in prior to going to a permanent protection assignment. But this time you're a little more seasoned, obviously. So you'll be mentoring some of the newer agents. You'll be giving much more complicated cases to investigate, and you'll be taking certainly more of a leadership role and and potentially a leadership as, assignment if you choose to go that route and, and uh, compete for those type of positions. But but then you're, you're kind of back in. Now, you can also go to our headquarters, do assignments there, a lot of different various assignments in D.C., but even those, some of those will be investigative type assignments where you're monitoring field investigations and a lot of different or, or intelligence type investigations, so threats on any of our protectees. So there's a lot of different investigative roles in the Secret Service. And you're you're right, Mike, a lot of people don't realize that. All they do is kind of see the dark suits on TV during, you know, this time during a campaign. And they think that that's, that's what we do during our whole career. And it would be impossible to do that your whole career. Although it's incredibly rewarding during that time, and it, typically it, it's the highlight of a lot of agents' careers careers or the, their permanent protection assignments, but it's incredibly demanding. You're, you're working shift work during that time and you're rotating those shifts every two weeks. So you really, your, your body never does seem to get used to it. And, yeah. and you're working double shifts a lot of times when you're traveling. So it's 16 hour days. And so then you have all the travel included in there. So during, although this was a little bit of an anomaly, this, this campaign season for the obvious reasons, but typically those campaigns can be pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. If you're assigned to a candidate, it's three weeks on and three weeks off. So you're with that candidate for three weeks and their job is to travel the country as hard as they possibly can. And so you're with them during that whole time. So when you're done with your shift, you are on a plane the very next morning, probably jumping a city or two ahead of him or her and picking them back up to work another 16 hour day. And if you're working the midnight shift, you're you're working a midnight, you're going directly to the airport, you're flying to the next city, which could literally be all the way across the country, working another midnight. And by the time you work the following midnight, he's back or she's back across the country again. So yeah, I mean, there's been times when all you're doing is going east coast to west coast and and work at midnight. That's just the way that they're planning 
their campaign. And they don't they don't know what we have to do during those times. And nor should they. I mean, we don't ever really want to be a part of that. But they plan their days out and, and we have to accommodate whatever wishes and they make those changes you know, on a daily basis. If they feel like they need to be in a state that they didn't originally plan for, well, they'll make that change the day before potentially or two days. And so we just have to constantly make adjustments to it. So it's a pretty tiring phase of your career during your protection phase or during those campaigns. I mean, that's not something you can sustain for an entire career. And they've even done studies on it, proving that. And so they've kind of determined about five years on a protective assignment is about the limit that somebody should do. Um, other people do longer than that and or become supervisors and continue that route. But the, generally, they've kind of determined that time frame is is probably the most that you can take and still at some point you're you want to stay mentally sharp and you know some of that stuff starts to diminish once you're burdened with that for so long you know paul just hearing all of that it's you kind of smile because you tend to look at something knowing that there's danger involved but you you know there's always that little glamour part right that they show in the films or whatever but just the reality of the like you said, the burden and the exhaustion. But amazingly enough, I never thought I'd have something in common with the Secret Service agent, but you were on the George W. Bush detail. And um, I actually worked with George W. Bush. Now, I wasn't a full-time employee, but I worked as a um, consultant on their faith-based initiatives with the public liaison office. So I I have fond uh, connection there that you were on his detail. And I'm thinking, gee, we might have crossed paths on one of those Christmas parties or one of those yeah, times that we had, sure. uh, had briefings. I know that we would, um, I would bring pastors in. That was my job to bring the different briefings they would have. And sometimes the president was Adam and sometimes it was his administration leaderships or staff. But, but I would have pastors. It was really rather funny when you were talking about all the vetting, you know, the background checks. And of course, they would, I'd have to turn in the list and at least, I believe, 24 hours or more um, for them to be vetted. And I had a couple of pastors that would sweat bullets because in their prior, as they said, our prior to becoming a Christian days, you know, I had <laughs> one that was, uh, you know, that was a drug addict. And I mean, he had been wanted by the FBI. <laughs> I mean, all sorts of interesting things. He goes, seriously, it's the Lord changed my life. But I, you know, I, just would, I would laugh at that because I think, oh, great, I'm going to have a pastor that can't get into the White House. Right. So, uh, but I have a connection with you on that, that, that you did obviously work on the detail. How long were you with uh, detail with President Bush? Uh, j just, just under five years. So you were almost at that max. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That was a great time in my career. It was a pleasure. And, and a lot of the agents that they take the job wanting to be on one of those big details, whether the president or vice president. But it, it was a, a highlight of my career. I, I enjoyed serving in, in that in that role. And it was an interesting time in the world as well. I, I wish certainly wish that some of those things I was in, involved in did not occur part of our history. But yes. but it was it was a, a real a real pleasure you know, serving in that capacity. Well, it's funny because I had written down here, Paul, demanding, and you went right into it. And, you know, I'm sitting here watching this week as President Trump comes back from being quarantined. It seems like he's going to be moving 100 miles an hour from 
early morning to late at night and kind of puts in perspective probably the next three or four weeks, whatever we are out, what, three weeks out from an election, his schedule is probably going to be changing every single day. So I can imagine the pressure that that puts on the agents responsible for keeping him safe. Oh, without a doubt. I just think even as hard as the next three weeks are, I mean, this is a very tame campaign season compared to previous ones because obviously because of the pandemic, but it's not unusual when, when they're hitting their stride. And this is the time, obviously the last month is a big push in any election, but it's not unusual for candidates to hit three, even, even four stops a day around this time. And so everything that, that has to go into that, that means you have advanced teams that are out there for all four of those cities, but you have advanced teams for the four cities the next day, and you have advanced teams for the four cities the following day and and for the day after that. So it, it it's more than just kind of what you see on TV. The preparation is good five days out. And so those teams are in place preparing for for that hour and a half visit five days out. And, you know, when, when they're traveling is hard. And, that, and that's why they do. You see a lot of these. And, and the one last night was an example of like an airport rally. You know, a lot of times the reason they do that is that they can get it's it's very simple to pull the plane up, get off the plane, give your speech in a traditional year, shake hands. Not this year, but go down, shake hands and get back on the plane and you're off to another city and you do another airport rally again. They're quick. There's you know, no travel far as motorcades. And so you that's how you can manage to get those four cities in. So that's why you see those type of events towards the end, just because they end up being much quicker. But even as hectic as, as you're mentioning, Mike, this isn't at all the pace that we're used to at this time during a campaign. It's it's typically three, maybe even four times the pace mm. of what, what you're going to see in the next three weeks. Thank you, folks. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with Paul Dvorak. Due to time constraints, we decided to make this two episodes. So please tune in next week for part two as we rejoin the conversation with Paul Dvorak and Mike McCarty on The Safety Zone. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.